Okay, Arnold, roll them. Good morning. Morning. Just check it over inside there, would you? Just to say you've had it. I haven't had it yet. <laughs> you going to have it right now. Oh, am I? All right. And you're a test. Oh, do forgive me, sir. I forgot. You're too old, aren't you? <laughs> I'll do it for you, sir. Mr. Elsinore, I, I shall get that 50 pence piece, even if I have to dig up half London to do it. I'll beat the daylight out of you. Come on, you vulgar little man. <laughs> you must for it now. I met your type before. It'd be a pleasure to smash your head in. <laughs> now, check bird hunting equipment. Lighter. Pardon me, miss. Was you looking for a light? Yeah. Very useful for opening conversations with birds, that is. Eight slimo biscuits a day. Um, you have no desire for any other food. Hormones. French Connection, A Clockwork Orange, Dirty Harry, Carry On at Your Convenience. All great films released in 1971. Hello and welcome to Goompod. Now, the film that we're discussing today also came out in 1971, but it is not quite impressive enough to be included alongside such august company. It is The Magnificent Seven Deadly Sins, directed by Graham Stark, and for the purposes of this podcast, featuring Messrs. Seacombe and Milligan, as well as many other well-known faces. Now, joining me today to talk about this film is John Orty from Behind the Stunts. What is Behind the Stunts, Tyler? Well, let John answer that in his own words. It is, uh, uh, it's a love letter to the action industry, really, is what it is. It's a, it's a celebration of everything um, stunt and action coordinated on film, on television. Mm-hmm. Um, primarily because that's all I ever wanted to do when I left school. Um, I was determined to be a stuntman after seeing uh, a movie called Escape to Athena. Oh, yeah. Uh, years Roger, ago, which Roger was Moore. A, Roger Moore picture, absolutely. Roger Moore, Telly Savalas, a cast of thousands. Uh, occupied Greece in the mid-40s, early 41, I think, is, is when it's set. And uh, there was some extraordinary action sequences in it, and I'd never really seen that before. That was my first cinema experience. And uh, later on in life, I discovered that um, there were nine stunt people on that picture. But mm. you look at the action on it, and there's there's people falling from roofs, there's car crashes, there's explosions, there's fire, there's all sorts thrown into this. And you go, nine people? Wow, that's interesting. So that sort of played in my mind for a while. Um, my love of the Bond films, then, of course, that expanded a bit more, and I suddenly realised, look at the action on this. And I realised that some of the people doing the action here are, in fact, many of the people that are doing the action in these movies and Superman and 
these pictures over here and these spy pictures and this. So they're all connected, found out about the industry and thought that's the job for me when I realised that I was going to probably come out of school with uh, little more than a thick ear. I imagine uh, qualification wise, it wasn't great. So I thought, OK, let's do that. And uh, met a guy called Roy Alon, um, who was uh, one of the top stunt people at the time. And um, he lived up in Leeds and said, uh, well, I mean, if you're serious about the whole thing, you know, you, you need to uh, get some training. So he was, I went primarily with him because he said um, he'd give me a grounding in certain of the skills like horse riding. I could ride a horse, I thought, reasonably well, but certainly not to the standard that would have been expected. So he took me to do that. We did high falls and we were doing, he was telling me about body positioning and all stuff that you may may not know. You know, you just yeah. think oh, it's, it's falling off a horse or it's doing this or it's doing that. And whilst falling off horses, which was one of the things that I was learning how to do, you don't just throw yourself off. You have to do it in a certain way. There's a certain stirrup that you would use. Um, and the, the horses are trained. Uh, if you see a sequence where a horse jumps a hedge over there, gallops through the explosions and then falls over over there it's often three horses you've got one horse which is um, good at jumping you've got one that is used to loud noises and explosions and you have one that is trained to fall very rarely do you get one horse that does all three mm. and so uh, I was going through uh, doing a thing called a saddle fall you see them in cowboy pictures cowboy shoots Indian gets hit with a, with a gun and then falls from the side of the horse uh, it doesn't get dragged because we use a thing called an L step, which allows your foot to come out of the of the stirrup quite simply. There's no chance of getting caught up or being dragged by the horse. Mm. And we did two or three on one side because you have a, a physical bias. Everybody is, uh, prefers one side of their body than the other. So I did three to my left and then we turned the horse around and we went the other side and I did I was going to do three to my right and, and did the first one. And the second one, uh, I broke my hip. No. Oh. And it just took so, so long to heal um, that when I did get to a situation where I thought, right, I'm back to some sort of fitness, it was just never right again. So it, it, had, it had become a, a bit of a weight around my shoulder trying to clear this injury and keep up my fitness which needed to be at a certain level in order to continue and uh, one wasn't uh, dovetailing the other one so it was, a, it was a really difficult situation so I uh, I started moving into writing about the industry because I'd known a bunch of people inside it and that's kind of how it happened so on the strength of that um, mm -hmm. a great many individuals particularly inside the business weren't talking to the press very often because often when they did speak to anybody press connected the press just wanted to know about any gossip primarily about the leading actors or how much the stunt people got paid and, and i wasn't interested in that I, I wanted to know what the airbags were made of and i wanted to know you know that, that that was my thing how much how much pressure do you need to have in in that in that thing called an air round that you need to stand on it and be thrown into that i just I was fascinated by the 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 science of the whole thing and, okay. uh, yeah. and yeah. I think that was that was how they got me into being as, um, almost a liaison. So that's kind of how it's happened and it's continued to to this day. So I'm very lucky in that respect. Yeah, I hold my hands up. I never really think about stunt people or stunt coordinators. I never think about them. Generally speaking, you watch a film, you're not supposed to notice that there's a stunt 
person, are you? Um, yeah, well, yeah, true. Uh, the only the only exception in recent times, I must admit, and it's rather neatly brings us around to kind of around to the purpose of this podcast. The only time re- recently that I really noticed a stunt person was I got uh, the Blu-ray of Return of the Pink Panther. Ah, yes. And the scenes where uh, Clouseau and Cato are giving each other a pasting in Clouseau's mm-hmm. apartment. Yes. In that film, there is a couple of sequences where the action is is slowed down and, and you can actually <laughs> see in, in, in high definition, you can yeah. see Mr. Sellers' stunt double. <laughs> yeah, it, was a, it was a guy called uh, Joe Dunn um, who sadly passed away uh, last year. All right. Uh, but was was Blake Edwards' go-to guy, and uh, in in pretty much all of Blake Edwards' movies up until maybe the last one or two, Blake uh, Blake always used Joe Dunn as his coordinator or double, and he was Peter Sellers' double on five uh, Panther pictures. Yeah. Um, and, and funnily enough, uh, Cato in in, uh, in a couple of those scenes is, is doubled by Malcolm Weaver, um, who. And again, this is another thing that's often come back to, but you've mentioned in high definition there. But of course, Malcolm Weaver is not remotely Oriental Chinese or any any of that at all, you know, (laughs) because we didn't have any. You know, we didn't have any doubles. So the UK uh, didn't have any uh, doubles. We we had, um, uh, you know, they they keep talking about uh, diversity and various other bits and pieces. The only black stuntman we ever had on the British Register was a guy called Clive Curtis, and he joined in 1976. Now, he was the very first black stunt performer, uh, and the next one turned up in 1987. That's two in Jeez. that huge space of time. So you know, people go, "Oh my God, there's a guy, uh, and he's and he's look, he's blacked up." Yeah, I, but we didn't have anybody else, you know. Right. And it was really a case of of not wanting to. And nowadays, because there are more. Um, performers from uh, different uh, ethnicities, uh, ethnicities. You still have to make sure that all of those are, you know, go to them first and say, look, this is the job and we need you to do it. Can you do it? You can't do it. Okay, well, I'll go and try somebody else. And then absolutely as a last resort, then you go around to anybody else who's available and say, look, would you do it? We can film it a certain way, but we need you to do this and this. So um, Malcolm did that for a number of those pictures, um, doubling Cato. Yeah. Okay. And very successfully. I mean, I, I must admit, I've never seen it in high def, so I've never caught. I have caught Joe Dunn from time to time. It was that. Was that the one that said that there's a time and a place for everything, Kato? And yep. this is it. And he did that one. Yes, yeah. Yep. <clears throat> Goes through the doors. That's terrific. <laughs> yeah, and you could clearly <laughs> see it is a bloke with a, yeah. a, a a little tash glued on. What was what was very very interesting about and and uh, there's a couple of. And again, we'll go. We're going full circle here, but but uh, two two performers <clears throat> who very much revolutionised the way that stunt performers work with their actors. Uh, Joe Dunn is one. Bob Simmons the other, and both of them doubled Peter Sellers. Uh, Bob Simmons uh, was uh, doubled him on Tom Thumb. There's a wonderful photograph um, of uh, Sellers and um, Bob Simmons together in character on set. Uh, and it's a it's a posed photograph, the two of them together. Now, you look at this photograph, the way it's done, it's beautiful. But what Bob Simmons did and what Joe Dunn did is they looked and they worked with the actor. So they worked with Sellers and they picked up those little mannerisms that he does almost instinct. Uh, you know, it does, does them automatically. 
And then when you see movement across the screen, and there are a couple of times in, in Pink Panther Strikes again, where you're not entirely certain whether it's Sellers or whether it's Joe Dunn, because of the way that the character is moving on the bicycle, for instance, all those little bits and pieces in that sequence where he's moving along and go, is it or isn't it? But it's not. What Joe Dunn has picked up on those and has become the character for those few frames. And, and since then, that it, that's got better and better to the point now where doubles are very, very good again. They're extremely good. They don't just look like the character that they're doubling they become the character that that, that they're working with and, and i think that's a that's a huge tick in the box for the type of work that's being carried out today sure i haven't seen tom thumb for 30 years i think it's from mm. about 58 something like that 50 uh, yes i think it was 58 yeah um but sellers in 58 and i remember the character he played he had a bit of timber on him so did bob simmons oh, have certainly. to have to sort of pad up or was he already had to quite... bulk up a little bit yeah because because bob simmons was a pt instructor you know he was always very very physically fit yeah. um working in film so yeah he had to bulk up a little bit in order to do it but um nevertheless you you look at them there and they're they're could be a spitting image of each other you know um but hugely hugely important but yeah check it out it's a great there's a couple of lovely sequences and you you'd be, you'd be hard pushed to dis, to decide who's who in it i must admit i'll check it out but um shall we should we start talking about the film yeah um, let's let's do that so yeah so today we're going to be talking about the 1971 film the magnificent seven deadly sins so so john why this film um, it's such a quirky piece of entertainment. And, I, and again, I found it by accident. And it's, how long have I had this? Again, this is VHS. I must have had this video, um, I think it was the mid-90s. I think it was the mid-90s. Uh -huh. And wandering into um, a, a charity shop, I, I tend to have a routine. I do books first. Mm. I'll wander through those. Oh, that's nice. Often biographies. I'm a big fan of biographies, so I tend to find those. Um, then a couple of odd bits and pieces I go around, and then I'm drawn towards vinyl and uh, video, as it was then, DVD as it is now. Um, and saw this pink um, video, and I thought, that's weird. And I picked it up, and when I turned it around, it had this rather elaborate poster on the front of it. And it said magnificent, uh, or did you say seven deadly? Uh, it said seven deadly sins. And then the, I think the word magnificent was below the whole thing. But I thought it's very interesting. What's this? And I saw Graham Stark's name on it. <clears throat> and then I, I, um, I saw Graham Chapman's name on it. And I'm trying to recognize some of the pictures. So, oh, they're Seekham. That's interesting. So, anyway, I thought, well, I'll have it, you know, and I bought it. And um, I must have played the thing to death. I found it completely absurd and hugely entertaining all the some one time you know there's often there's often a fine line between nonsense and huge entertainment that you just keep going back to well i couldn't i couldn't stagger that line at all i i was i put it in <laughs> and i'd have my favorite little moments in it and then i would go back and i'd uh, this is you know you couldn't go back scene by scene you had to rewind the whole thing and play it from the top which was hugely fun and I've always liked Graham Stark. Um, and I, I found it a very interesting project that he would want to direct it. 
that was the thing that I found most fascinating. Also, from a music point of view, Roy Budd is the composer on this, and I absolutely adore Roy Budd's music. Um, he was 46 when he died, I think. It's terrible. Was he? 46, 47, yes. He was very, very young. But Roy, but, Roy, uh, Roy Budd, I know from um, Get Carter. Yes, absolutely. Get Carter. Uh, there was a wonderful movie. Well, I say wonderful movie. That's not entirely true. A movie called Diamonds, uh, which was a Robert Shaw picture, and he did some of the scores for those. Um, he's been responsible for some uh, Michael Winner pictures. Again, uh, pretty questionable, but again, the scores tend to stand out. Who Dares Wins, Lewis Collins' SAS movie. He's responsible for the movie. Wonderful from a jazz background. And this is this is quite interesting because some of the sequences in this film, which he has scored in a very interesting way, that there are some ca character-driven pieces uh, in this picture. And one character has a theme and another character has a theme. You know, yeah. and the two blend themselves very well together. I think he's an excellent choice for a composer. Um, and he really, and a funny guy too. I, I did see an interview with him. He's a very funny guy. And I think, I think that's why he, he kind of liked this project because there was, there was all sorts. There was fun, there was laughter, there's romance in there. Um, um, there's some heartache in there. You know, there's all sorts for a composer to be a, be allowed to throw the kitchen sink at different areas that he may not cover in one particular project. And here, because of the nature of this film, um, he's given a bit of leeway to be able to cover all sorts. But I think it's, um, I've always wanted to see if it's available. So I, I must uh, re-endeavour to uh, to check and see if the score is available. But it's, uh, it's a lovely, it's, I've always enjoyed the film, I must admit. And if I'm feeling a bit miserable, I'll stick it on. And uh, it always makes me feel better, I must admit. It, 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 it sticks in my mind from when we first got a VHS player, right. mid-80s. I want to say that this film was the first video that we re that we rented. Really? Wow. Yeah. Well, I say we, my, my father bought it home. This, this would have been pre-me getting into the goons as well. Okay. So my, my dad was a fan of Milligan. So mm -hmm. he, he, I think he rented it, bought it home, and it was the first film that we watched. Uh, and it sticks in my mind because there was a few little bits in the film that were, you know, for someone who, whatever age I would have been, <laughs> 11 or 12, um, there was a few Questionable bits. content. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and I haven't, I'll be honest with you, I haven't watched it in its entirety until now, again, although I have watched... <laughs> A bit sad, I suppose, but I have watched the Seacombe and Milligan sequences uh, in isolation since then. Right. That makes sense. Okay. Um, so I was interested to, to revisit it for sure. And um, and a previous guest on, on this show, John Dredge, um, is very fond of this film. And, and he, yeah. he, he cites the Milligan portion of the film as, as being, you know, one of the funniest things ever committed to film. Which, yeah, I mean, there's, it, 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 we'll, we'll come on to that. I just wanted to, what I like to do whenever we're talking about a film or something like, you know, a film or a TV series, I do like to try and put it into its historical context as well mm -hmm. by looking at what else was going on in the world. And okay. th this film was released in November 1971. And as you say, it was, it was direct, produced and directed by Graham Stark. Mm. Graham Stark, who some might say unfairly, 
gets remembered chiefly these days, I, I guess, for being um, never more than six feet away from Peter Sellers in <laughs> Peter Sellers' films. Um, yeah, him which, and David Lodge. The David three Lodge. Together, yeah, but Graham Stark a little bit more. He has, he has the edge, yeah. I think. Um, but no, I mean, Graham Stark, yeah, he was doing his own thing as well. He did direct a short film the year before this called Simon Simon. Have you seen that? No, I haven't, no. As I say, uh, Stark starred in it and directed it, uh, and it had um, a lot of his famous friends in it, such as Morecambe and Wise, Bob Monkhouse. Uh, oh, right. Peter Sellers makes a, an appearance. Michael Caine makes a brief appearance. <laughs> uh, Tony Blackburn. And, it's, I mean, it's okay. It's, it's you know, it's, it's absolutely fine. And then in 1971, he, he makes... The Magnificent Seven Deadly Sins, and as I say, it comes out in in November. Um, so I just had a, I had a look to see what else was going on in the world in November, nineteen seventy one. Mm-hmm. The Steven Spielberg film Jewel was first broadcast on US television. Dennis Weaver, yeah, which is a fantastic film. Mm. I mean, it was a TV film that was then given a cinematic release, wasn't it? It was. I think he was he was doing a lot of. Um... Uh, Columbo television episodes yeah. and well, one. Um, one, yeah, he did one. It was always the one with Betty Davis, or was that a? I think I, I can't remember whether she turned Betty. up in one of them or whether there was a separate one. I know he did one with Betty Davis. No, she she wasn't. In, no, he did. Uh, Spielberg did the the first episode proper. There was a pilot episode. Oh, and I then see, right. and then in, in I think it was August seventy one. The first proper episode of Columbo went out with um, Jack Cassidy as the killer. Um, right, but no, Bet- Betty Davis wasn't in Columbo. Was it Betty Davis or Lillian Gish? So he did uh, earlier in his career. In, this is Spielberg's career. I know we're going, we're going, we've tangented for a moment. Yeah. But uh, at early, an early area of his career, there was a television thing that he was directing, and it had a big Hollywood star uh, starlet in it. Um, 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 it'll come to me at some okay. point. And okay. if I blurt her name out partway through the course of this year, ah, I've, I've found out what it is. But uh, uh, no, we'll, we'll crack on. Go yeah, ahead. so, so if, if we're talking about, I don't know, Harry H. Corbett, and you suddenly shout, Ida Lupino. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. ah, now, if you say Ida Lupino, I'll have to say Howard Duff, uh, who was her husband, oh. who was uh, reputedly a bit of a brawler. Right. And uh, there's a wonderful story in... Um, um, David Niven's uh, Bring on the Empty Horses, where the two of them have a, f- a fabulous fight in a, in a restaurant one evening. Anyway, anyway. Anyway, yes. <laughs> um, and, so, and the plot. Yeah, go on. So, yeah, so, so Jewel, you know, that, that was broadcast. Um, Ernie, The mm. Fastest Milkman in the West, was released in November 71 by Benny Hill. Oh, yes, that's right. Big single, that was. Yeah. It was, absolutely. Um, uh, the, the now seminal text, Fair and Loathing in Las Vegas, was published. Hunter, Hunter Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson, that's right. Yeah. Um, and the beloved children's television series Playaway began on BBC Two in November. Oh, did it really? 1971. Wow. And also, one last thing that sort of hit the headlines in this year, in this month, D.B. Cooper. Do you know about D.B. Cooper? He's the guy who hijacked... Um, he's the guy who hijacked an aeroplane and allegedly parachuted out. Was never seen again. That's right. Yep. He um, he managed to to hijack. It was a it. movie years later, wasn't there? There's been a few. 
Yeah, um, I didn't check. I just know that he he asked for two hundred thousand dollars, right? Which, right. if you're going to go through the, it, it was an elaborate. I mean, he never got found. He never got. They never traced him. No, they and, never traced and, him. Yeah. And, and he's you're going to go to all the effort of, you know, the the whole plan is quite intricate. Because I remember reading about it a couple of years ago. But to ask for two hundred thousand dollars, even in 1971, it, you know, you, you ask for a million at least, surely to God. Yeah, but, go go big or go home. Having said that, maybe he had to sort of uh, arrange the money about his person if he's parachuting. So maybe the weight was a consideration. Um, this is true. Anyway, um, but there we are. So maybe, the, maybe, maybe, of course, he wasn't he wasn't able to earn that much because otherwise he'd lose his benefits. <laughs> is, is another possibility you know you can't go in at a million because um i'm already getting tax credits here it's tricky you know no, so i see that yeah mm-hmm. so, so there we are that's what was happening when this film was um filling the multiplexes or wow well, whatever they were back then um so the magnificent seven deadly sins is uh what would you call it a, a portmanteau film in the sense that it's it's uh, as the name suggests it is a British sketch comedy film with seven different uh, little stories, which each illustrate one of the seven deadly sins. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Uh, and and they feature the the, the 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 cream of the crop of British uh, comedy acting and comedy actors and comics and and writers. Uh, oh. We're going to go through the sketches, or we're going to go through each sequence one by one, yeah. but. Um, the thing that links each sketch is a series of, of uh, animated sequences. So we have we have director Graham Stark uh, quite his well. His best German accent. Yeah, with his, his phony German accent, but quite <laughs> quite uh, quite um, ably realised by animator Bob Godfrey. Yeah. Um, now Bob Godfrey um, has got a goon connection in as much as he uh, did some animated linking sequences for. Uh, Son of Fred in, in 56. Right. Um, he worked with Michael Benteen on uh, After Hours and It's a Square World. Uh, he also worked with Michael Benteen on it. There was a short film in 60, 61, 62 called The Do-It-Yourself Cartoon Kit, which I have seen, which is very good. It's very Terry Gilliam-esque if you, if you look at it mm. now. And you could be forgiven for thinking that Terry Gilliam was perhaps even involved with it, you know, but he wasn't. It was it was pre pre Gilliam, yes. Um, but Michael Benteen uh, was the narrator on that short oh, film. Here is a picture of Miss Junie Lilla, uh, Juno Lilla, Miss Mavis Clark, the well-known violinist. We'll have more to say about her later on. But meanwhile, just have a look at all the wonderful things you get in our free do-it-yourself cartoon kit. Remember, all you have to do is to send a hundred guineas and five soup mix packets to this address. You'll get five Mickey Mouses, three Tom and Jerry's, six geese a-laying, ten fat old women, one Brazilian conjurer, four fugal horns, one Union Jack, seven little men in bowler hats, one Florence Nightingale, three admirals. A rear admiral, a front admiral, a red admiral, and a vice admiral. Two framed masterpieces painted by Van Dyke's mother-in-law, four elephants, two Chinese policemen, a photograph of Battersea Power Station, three typical British housewives, a rugby team complete with umpires. The Norfolk Broads. Three Widow Twankies, the Empire State Building, 11 performing seals, an Abyssinian Fire Eater, a chocolate wristwatch. And a first aid kit complete with fret saw. And a jar of stick anything adhesive glue. Um, but but I guess Bob Godfrey really is best known now for, is it rhubarb and custard? Rhubarb and custard, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
which was uh, uh, voiced by Richard Briers, wasn't it? Yes, I think you're right. I think you're yeah. right. And so, so yeah, so we have these animated linking sequences with director Graham Stark and cameraman, it's called Arnold, I think. Um, Arnold! Arnold. And then the, <laughs> the film, sta film starts with this willowy woman running through a sort of sylvan paradise with trees and a river and and then she starts to take her clothes off and you think hey up oh, here we go you know you think okay this this is the film sitting out at store early on really. <laughs> yes this uh, is where we're going with this yeah uh, and then we see uh, an animator graham stark as the as the german director and as cameraman arnold um and and they they are very strategically placed on the screen to cover any naughty bits yes i, I wrote in my notes there i i <laughs> Read the phrase boob coverage. That's it. <laughs> uh, which I think kind of sums the whole thing up. And then he break then he breaks the fourth wall and talks to us. Yeah. You know, uh, as the character. But uh, it's I think it was Graham Stark's moment of self indulgence. I know we'll have this um, at the start of, of of the picture. The the young lady who uh, uh, is being the model here, Felicity Devonshire. Mm. Um, who is the uh, the uh, young lady who's in the nip uh, in these early moments and uh, uh, having just had a quick look at her um, um, uh, what <laughs> at her, uh, what was I having a look at <laughs> mm, I love it uh, uh, her um, IMDB there we are that's her yeah. uh, the previous her previous piece of work before this um, was a thing called contracts in 1968 and uh, was evidently uh, a, a documentary with um, Yehudi Menuhin. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <which> I, <laughs> I say he's on the fiddle. Uh, and Michael Goff was in it. Oh, and, Mickey, uh, Mickey Goff. It's just, just a very, very interesting thing to go. And Gordon Jackson, I think, turns up in an episode as well. Um, so I'm not quite sure what it was, but evidently on the strength of that, um, Graham thought she's the one for me, mm. I think. Mm. And uh, uh, she, uh, let's not uh, uh, bandy words here. She's a, a very lovely uh, young lady um, and um, is possibly overused in the sequence, but um, it's, uh, it's, it's a very entered, it's not the way that I expected it to start, I must admit. And maybe that's the other reason for doing it in the first place is that we, we're going we're to throw you a curved ball here. Um, and they leave it relatively long before the characters, the animated characters, come out on screen. I think. Yeah, it's it's to it's to lure in the the dirty Mac brigade. The possibly. dirty Mac brigade, yes, quite right. Uh, and once they're in the cinema, you know, and it's pissing down outside, then they're gonna, you know, they're not going to stay where they are. That's it. All rules are off then. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so Stark, the director, obviously introduces the film, and 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 uh, we have. Um, the first of the the seven sins which yes. is which is avarice mm. uh, and it's written by esmond and larby john esmond and bob larby who at the time were writing on pleaser and right. would go on to create the good life and brushstrokes and great shows like that mm. and quite unusually we have bruce Forsyth. we do yeah um and I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of Bruce Forsyth mm. uh, as an entertainer. I think he's absolutely spectacular. Um, uh, uh, 
was always compared as, as the uh, the British Sammy Davis Jr. on the basis of his all-round ability at doing everything. Mm. He was a song and dance man. He played amazing jazz piano. Um, he could uh, do live uh, for, forever and only acted a bit, right? Didn't do a great deal, but did act now and again. Um, and playing, he plays Clayton as the character in this picture, doesn't he? Um, the um, the chauffeur. And I, I think it's really rather nice that, that he gets to do um, a, a few little bits like this. Um, his... Um, it's very subservient character to uh, to uh, Mr. Elsinore uh, in the back seat, who is within the first few moments. I, mean, I thoroughly hated the man; I <laughs> just didn't like him at all. Um, and um, that this this whole routine about the uh, the Green Shield stamps, for instance, and um, <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> going to the petrol station and asking for a packet of tissues uh, simply because he wants to get his green shield stamped. Um, and then the losing of the 50 pence, which is how the whole thing starts. This is the whole key to the entire thing, isn't it? So, yeah, so 50, they, they both, both chauffeur and employer spot this 50p piece on the pavement mm-hmm. and employer who's a um, dreadful man. Dreadful um, character. Yeah. He, he claims it for himself and then somehow or other it manages to get dropped down the down the grid and down into the sewers. So he insists that his chauffeur, Forsyth, has to has to retrieve it. Now, and then begins this series of increasingly comical uh, instances and events. Yeah. Uh, culminating in Bruce Forsyth just being covered in sewerage, I guess, really, isn't it? Um, yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> pretty much, I think. All, all he had to do when his boss went into the to the meeting was just get another 50 pence get, get another yeah. 50 pence that's all he had to do <laughs> you don't have to go through all of this uh, um, 50p by the way back then is uh, was worth the equivalent of about seven quid today so you know yeah. it's a, i can understand why you know you, you well no i'm not going to crawl around in the sewers for seven quid i don't know about you but no um i think that um you know he's he's given He's given a couple of moments where he gets to expand on what he would normally do. Um, you know, this is Bruce Forsyth from doing um, Sunday Night at the London Palladium, which is what he'd been very famous for originally. Um, he'd been in, he was in Bed Knobs and Broomsticks the year before. So he got some, yeah. um, you know, a bit of, a bit of coverage, a bit of plaudits for that. And so him turning up in this as a, a little British comedy was quite nice. Um, and he gets to do a couple of lovely little bits. Bernie Breslau, for me, just steals the whole thing down there uh, as the the sewerage guy. And, you know, when in doubt, and this is the nice thing about these little sketches, the, there's so many terrific individuals who just turn up. Roy Hudd mm. turning up with a fishing rod and saying, may I? <laughs> you go, okay. <laughs> and so he goes off and starts fishing for this. And Jody Sims as the, uh, as the, uh, a WPC. I, if you can see my buttons shining down there, you'll see I'm a WPC. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so all of this sort of stuff, you know, the, the terrific little moments um, culminating in, in Bruce being uh, uh, actually throwing the 50 pence back down into the, uh, into the hole after Elsinore goes for a burp. Yeah. So uh, he had it. He had it coming. That was it. Up case comeuppance. I'm surprised Elsinore managed to fall down that hole. By the way, 
It uh, was quite small, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was yes. snug. Snug. Um, <laughs> so, so then we get the second sequence, which is envy. Um, envy. And 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 one thing I perhaps haven't made completely clear to complete um, imbeciles who aren't aware of this film, mm-hmm. Spike is in it, but also Ned of Wales, Harry Seacombe. He's in it as well. And he's in this this segment called Envy, written by Dave Freeman, who was one of those comedy writers, I think he was like one of those jobbing writers, who um, he wrote Carry On Behind and Carry On Columbus. Uh, yes. And he wrote for Benny Hill and things like that. Um, That's right. And, and so we have this sequence where Seacom seems to be a, a relatively wealthy man with a wife, quite a demanding wife, played by um, played by a, a, an actress I wasn't familiar with. Uh, I had to look her up, and I was quite surprised actually. Carmel Cryan, or Carmel Cryan, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce the the surname, but she was, or she is, or she was, uh, Rory Kinnear's mother, actor Rory Kinnear. From, oh, is that right? From That's the Bond films and Count right. Arthur Strong and whatnot, and obviously she was Roy Kinnear's wife. Roy Kinnear's wife. That's um, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, and she appeared in EastEnders as well. I think that was her her, her only sort of major acting role in her in her career. Right. But the, the 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 story is that that Harry Seacombe and his wife, or his wife, I should say, she's she won the polls, didn't she? That's uh, that's how I understood it. Or that the, oh, the score right. draws, right. the score draws came up, and it was very much her score draws. You know, um, she's the one that's going. Uh, she wants to buy a particular house is the is the idea and it, that the fact that somebody's currently living in it is not going to stop her from buying that house that was that's i think the drawback behind it and he's not too fussed no i don't think harry's too bothered about the whole thing uh his character stanley's not too bothered but um he no if that's what you want my love i'll go and do it and so you know he keeps uh, he goes to the house to knock on the door and the owner is jeffrey bladen bailden um bailden bailden I'm sure you know him from Cat Weasel and all sorts of Cat things. Cat Weasel, mm. yes. Uh, he's also, um, uh, and much later on in life, but if I'm not mistaken, um, the theme to Top of the Pops back in the mid-80s was called The Wizard, and it was done by Paul Whitehouse, and he is the vocal for The Wizard on the track. Useless piece of information, but you can keep that for the pop quiz Paul, bit. If Paul, you wish. Not Paul Whitehouse, the comedian. But what did, I, what did I say, Paul Whitehouse? I meant Paul Hardcastle. Sorry, All right. <laughs> I've got my polls mixed up. Although, having said that, I think the idea of Paul Whitehouse writing the thing for Top of the Pops <laughs> would have been quite entertaining. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so Paul Hardcastle, of course, wrote the theme after having the success of 19, Yes, uh, which he did. Then, a bit later on, he was asked to write the theme to Top of the Pops called The Wizard. And The Wizard, the character who does some vocal lines yeah. in there, is, is Jeffrey. Jeffrey, right. Jeffrey was in um, hundreds of films, I want to say, but he was everything. <laughs> he's been, he's been, he was in uh, Top of My Head, Pink Panther Strikes Again. He was uh, Night to Remember. He was the Crow Man, Wurzel Gummidge. Um, yes, he was in uh, what 
Casino Royale. He was in mm. countless episodes of Doctor Who. Um, and you name it, he was in it. He was almost, you know, the sort of go-to, we're struggling to find a character for this. Oh, I know. Let's read Jeffrey. Yes. Let's see if he's free. Um, yeah. And and again, he does that thing in this that that he seems to do in everything. They've given him a script and said, right, this is your character. Uh, and uh, your wife is, of course, the fabulous June Whitfield. And um, and we like you to do um, a sort of Jeffrey Bailden thing, if you wouldn't mind. So Seekham rather reluctantly is is dispatched by his wife to go and essentially try and buy the house or, or force them to sell the house. <laughs> and he has to employ a number of increasingly outlandish disguises. He's, he, at first, he's a chairman of the Residents' Association talking about a, an airport that's due to be built down the road, <laughs> um, which doesn't work. Um, then he's a sea captain with a spirit gum beard. Uh, I don't <laughs> quite West know, Country accent. Yeah, yes. I don't quite know what he's trying to do there. And then... And then a little bit more problematically, he is a West Indian with, with, he's done a really half-assed job of blacking up, hasn't he? It's just <laughs> awful, you know, and yet at the time, you know, people would have been falling about laughing. Yeah. Uh, and yet it just, because even Jeffrey says, the character says, are, he says to him, are you really coloured? He says to him, he says, yes. And then the, the sea just carries on with Jeffrey doing this rather extraordinary <laughs> dance. I think you people are the only people that can carry off this wonderful rhythm. I love it. And he starts dancing in this very peculiar way. Yeah. And then mm. Harry just goes huh, and walks off because that particular avenue hasn't worked. It's a very peculiar moment. I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering whether Harry Seacom refused the full works. You know, I'm, I'm wondering whether he said, no, I'm not going to do full blackface. No, not, not, not even it. So in the end, they just put a bit of silt or something on his cheeks. That was the it. scene itself, that little gag, really doesn't work terribly well. Mm. I mean, apart from the fact that it's, it's, you know, nowadays you look at it and go, well, it's just not funny. But then it's an unnecessary addition to a sequence that might have worked if you'd done it a different way. And uh, you may be right. Maybe maybe Harry has gone, no, fuck this for a game of soldiers. I don't really think this is the way that we want to do this. So let's just... I'll we'll do an absolute bare minimum and then we'll move on to the next setup, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it's not, it's not the strongest sequence in the film. Let's be fair. My favorite moments in the whole thing is when, is when he's just playing Stanley, you know, mm. when he's, when he's not in the various characters, <clears throat> when he walks into the house, he does this thing where he walks into the house and obviously they're aware that, that, that they're trying to have nothing to do with him. And he just wanders into the house. He opens every door going, hello, hello. And he keeps walking around. Uh, I did knock, but there was no answer. And he keeps walking around the house and eventually finds, what do you do? He finds Jim Whitfield in the bath. Oh, I'm sorry. And then closes the door. And then, of course, Jeffrey's in the other room hiding. Um, I've asked her if she's interested in selling. She's going to let me know and closes the door. So he's trying to have a conversation between the two of them. I'll be in touch. <laughs> keeps saying over and over again. <laughs> Completely random. Hello? Have you made up your mind yet? I'm sorry. I didn't know you were in there. There's a house going on the river for 35,000 and it's got two more rooms. Darling, you really must lock this door. Anybody might come in, I mean. Strangers or anybody. 
If you want more time to think about it, say so. I made her an offer. She's thinking about it. I'll be in touch then. I'll be in touch. I say, if I come back in half an hour, could you let me know? Yeah, you'd be on to the police by this point, wouldn't you? You would, yes, exactly. You'd be on the police. <laughs> uh, and yet, it, uh, and of course, it doesn't end terribly well, does it? No, so they contrive to get this newspaper printed up, this mock newspaper. The, the banner headline on the front is that there's a motorway about to be built right through the right through where the house is situated. Yes. And, uh, and so Belden and, and Whitfield uh, agree to sell. Seekham's and his wife's face faces fall as this solitary digger drives up the driveway. Um, yes, because it was it was real. It is actually happening. There is a motorway being built, folks, um, and, and they are going to demolish the house, even if you're in it. Yes, it makes no difference. <laughs> <laughs> Regardless, they're just going <laughs> to knock it right down. And behind me, they're probably building the road as we speak. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, oh dear. So there we go. And then, uh, and, and, and so that sequence ends and we, we get to uh, gluttony. Gluttony. I like gluttony. Uh, that's just a general piece of gossip. I'm a big <laughs> fan of gluttony. But, uh, but this particular segment I, I like very much because uh, it's, the, it's the wonderful Leslie Phillips in it. Can I just, um, can I just mention, by the way, mm. I meant to mention this earlier. So as I say, I, I watched this, I actually watched this last night. Um, I've done a bit yes, of research. So I've <laughs> done a bit of research prior to actually watching it, you know. But mm. I actually physically watched it last night, and I watched it with uh, uh, four friends of mine. We okay. um, we all sort of synced up. We were on Skype, and we synced up, and we watched it together. And so we were commenting during it. And right. these are friends, um, one of whom's been on this show, and and uh, the other two are going to be on, you know, at a future date. And they. They know their stuff. You know, we watch mm -hmm. as a group, we watch a lot of old British films and tally and stuff. And, and they, right. they, they really know their stuff and they know their actors and they know, you know. And so, you know, we're, we're commenting on this film as we're watching it. And so we're watching Gluttony and sort of halfway through it, I said, well, OK, this is written by Graham Chapman or co-written by Graham Chapman. Mm -hmm. Nothing in this sequence screams Graham Chapman at all no to me no uh it, it's graham chapman and barry crier uh it, it and it's it's fine and you said you would you, you enjoy this this sequence it could have been written by dave freeman <laughs> as far as i'm concerned <laughs> uh, i'm suspect well yeah if you look at you look at the the, the track record of of graham chapman and, and and the track record of of barry crier and the type of um clever bits and pieces that they come up with and you look at this and you go this isn't really ticking either of their boxes and i suspect that graham's probably come up with a couple of ideas um about the product for instance the slimo biscuit idea 
and um, and Barry's come up with a couple of little bits and pieces. The chicken, the the uh, the duck in the shower was 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 definitely Barry's idea because I have heard him talk about that before. Right. Um, but um, only only the fact that he said, and based on the fact that he said that there are occasions when you're in the bath and you just get really hungry, and you can't get <laughs> from the bath to the kitchen. I thought, wouldn't it be nice if I could just eat? So, so that's how that started. So I could see that. Um, Graham. Uh, again, Graham was um, uh, hit and miss as far as a lot of writing was concerned mm. in those period of time. His name would be against a great deal of it. And uh, on occasions, he would produce some fabulous bits. Uh, but he was often the one that was the catalyst. Somebody would have an idea and he would go, uh, it'd be better if we did this. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah. and I think having, having looked at some of it again, um, that the business in the office creating the sandwich is graham pre predominantly hiding the toaster hiding the ham the the way and and the leslie phillips really works that as a piece of business terribly well i must admit um and he's quite literally eating the furniture yeah. see that and and, and i know i i am i i'm guilty of taking things literally or too literally sometimes and when it's comedy mm. and it's meant to be buffo laughs it's meant to be heightened reality of course it is mm. but i'm but i'm saying i'm watching this and i'm saying to the guys well okay it's his office why does he have to hide food so elaborately who's he hiding it from yeah and and my, yeah. my friend gary said and, and also he said there's meat there there's ham it should be properly refrigerated. It's not. Mm -hmm. it, it's hidden in between the pages of books. Elford like safety go mad. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> field day. Taking it, taking it a bit too seriously, really. Uh, we have the obligatory appearance because it's 1971. It's a British film, British comedy film. Yep. Julie Edge has to be in it. So we have Julie, Most certainly. Julie Edge turns up and you know, you can understand why she would be attracted to Leslie Phillips, of course. But I was saying, um, I was thinking he's not, yes, he has that, he's suave and he's dashing, but it's the, you know, the fact that he's, he's, he's almost um, gorging himself. Well, he is gorging himself. He is. On food. Yeah. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't fall right with me. With Leslie Phillips, it just doesn't, I just didn't felt it suited his character, if you like. So um, I asked my friends recasting who who would be the perfect actor at this period to play that part that leslie phillips played and gary suggested terry scott and i think oh. and i think he's spot on i think he's spot on because oh, fabulous because if you think terry scott around this time was in carry on loving where he was the love interest of imogen hassel I think it's his best role in that in Carry On Loving. <laughs> I think he's absolutely wonderful in yes. it. Yeah, so I could see that yeah. definitely. So he's he's got a you know he's a, he's a little bit he's a little bit more solid than yes. Uh, I mean, in terms of in terms of girth um, than Leslie Phillips, you could imagine him having <laughs> a an not eating... scared of a bowl of rice pudding. No, no yes, yeah. I see that. Yeah, you can imagine him having a, a, an obsession with food, but also you know yeah. t turning you know Julie Edge's head. Quite right. Uh, so, yes, no. so, so, but anyway, we're, we're going off the, 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 the subject, but um, I didn't quite understand what was going on in this, apart from the fact that Leslie Phillips just wanted to get as much food in his mouth as he could. And then he was seduced by Julie Edge. And well, and that's it, really. I, I think that, yeah, the, the, this whole concept for, the, for the, the advertising agency that he works for, because they come up with this ridiculous concept of the Slimo biscuit. We don't know what's in it. 
you know, we don't, it's, it's in the early days of meal replacement, evidently. Yeah. Have, a, have one for breakfast, one for lunch, and a, 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 a filing cabinet full of food for your dinner, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> so that, evidently that may have been the sideline they were looking at, but it's, they look just like wafer biscuits. So the idea that you can have four of these a day and never feel hungry, okay. But obviously, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a metaphor for the advertising world as we see it today. And this whole concept of, you know, don't believe everything you see, because quite clearly this guy has said, this is a great, what a great campaign, what a fabulous logo. Has to be this lady, has to be this, this is the one I want. And then gorges himself on all this food all the time. But, it, but to everybody else, he has to say, no, I... The, the secretary, she says, you really do believe in our product, don't you? And, oh, yes, yes. He's a bit of mouthful of donut, you know. <laughs> so it's just this um, sausage in a lamp, though. Come on. Mm. Who doesn't want sausage in a lamp? It's, that sounds like a, something something by the Smiths in 1984. Oh, um, St- Graham Stark liked his bare backsides, didn't he? Didn't he? Yeah, he's a big fan. Mm. I think maybe, and again, maybe because for the um, what certificate was this? Did we uh, did we find out? I think I, it was down as a was it an A? Uh, I don't an A I didn't check. at the time, yeah. which would have been a uh, would have been a sort of. I suppose now it would be known as a twelve, would it? Um, uh, in equivalence, because right. things have moved a great deal. Well, they? there's no there's no swearing, there's no violence True. to speak of, and there's no True. there's no full frontal nudity. No, no, it's 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 partial, isn't it? Mm. Um, and it's done. It's it's a humoured nudity with humour. Mm. So that's possibly their way around it. Uh, yeah. But yes, he's he's keen on a on a bare bottom. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I, who isn't? Let's be fair. But um, I think it's also he's he's um, he's casting in this whole thing is is extraordinary as well. The Doctor, I think, is <laughs> wonderful. It's Patrick Newell. Patrick Newell, yes. Um, yeah. Of course, was. Um, Mother, wasn't it? in the in the uh, in the Avengers, uh, uh, I, I, certain other things. I never really got, got into the Avengers. No, um, but, I know uh, from turning up here and there and everything back in the. But w- 70s. what you were saying about um, about Terry Scott was a, was is is a very interesting thing uh, if you look at the connection between that and and the Doctor because the way um, Leslie Phillips is telling him exactly what he's eating mm. and he's going through. He said. Uh, um, Cheese, yes, yes, cheese. Oh, uh, it was uh, uh, Swiss. Oh, Swiss cheese, right? And then, uh, um, and then he gets to the stage where he said, "Yes, all in a sandwich, tomato sauce, yes," and and it was toasted. It was toasted, and he's now. You've got to the point. The doctor's got to the point now where he's absolutely ravenous. Takes a bar of chocolate, a huge one, mm. a massive bar of chocolate, and devours it like you've never seen anybody eat a bar of chocolate in your life mm. but he's he's a really excellent casting for that particular role i think shoveling this piece of chocolate <laughs> into his mouth um But uh, absolutely, but it's it's it is a very peculiar setup, isn't it? But um, I think it's just the, the there's just those little moments, you know, hiding the food um, and uh, eventually um, going round to the uh, the CEO's place for braised duck, which he's very excited about, and <laughs> stuffing, obviously, which he doesn't get in the end. Oh, he needs stuffing. Oh, uh, speaking of which, we get on to the next sequence, which is lust. 
Ah, uh, yes. Uh, and and, yes. and I would say this is the most melancholy. I think so. I think this is really it's it's a bit of a tearjerker, really. If you if you look at the whole thing, because he's a um, the the main character, the dreamer, Ambrose, who's played by the fabulous Harry H. Corbett. Mm-hmm. And um, you get that initial thing, you know, he's prepping for his big night out in the town. He's got he's got his trousers under the bed to keep them pressed, uh, which <laughs> I, I thought was lovely. Um, and uh, you know, he's having a shout at the um, um, at the dry cleaners because they always leave that pin in the back of the shirt, don't they? There's always yeah. something you find. Oh, bloody! What's that? There it was. So he does all of that, but he's he's doing that thing. He's preparing himself. He's got his little phrase books just in case he comes up against the. The, uh, the foreign au pair, so he's got the English-Swedish, the Ger- English-German, the Spanish, he's got them all mm-hmm. sorted out. Mm-hmm. So he's prepared, you know, and he's going through all of his routines. It's actually a really nice little, that that opening sequence where he's... It is. It's doing it's that thing. I think it's really lovely. Wonderful. It's, it, I would say it's, to me, this is the second best sequence in the film. And it's yeah. the proper, there's a proper beginning, middle and an end. And yes, absolutely. A, a nice, a nice, satisfying payoff. Um, and it's based on a story by Marty Feldman, apparently. Graham Stark adapted it or wrote it. And uh, mm. and it's it's more or less, it's it's tour de force for Harry H. Corbett. Um, I think it is. I think because he was so, he's been so associated with the whole Steptoe thing. Mm. Um, to be given an opportunity to do this, you know, it's, it's fantastic, I and mean, he does it beautifully. It really does, as a as a leading a leading character in this, which he is. It's just wonderful. He does it. Uh, he does it very very well indeed, and delivers everything. Ticks all of those boxes, you know. Yeah, yeah, and, and um, it, he wants to be a Jack the Lad, but he's he's not. He can't be. He, he's no. he, he lacks the confidence, and he 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 lacks the the charm. And uh, nice little sort of sequence where he bumps into Bill Pertwee on the tube. Um, <laughs> who's, who's playing Bill Pertwee? There's a lot of that going on in this, actually. Yeah, Bill Pertwee chunnering on about hormones. Uh, I, I, in terms of recasting, I suggested because just watching Harry H. Corbett playing the character, always going on about birds. Am I going to pick up oh, a bird Saturday night? Yeah. I'm going to go up west, you know. And I was thinking, again, I was thinking possibly Terry Scott could play the role or uh, Trevor Bannister, who... Trevor Bannister from Are You Being Served? Yes, yeah, I thought, I thought perfect casting for that. That's, that's, that's very good. Yeah, I like that. Um, and I, I liked when he went to... He, he was at the, he's at the tube station and he's um, being barracked by this woman in the magazine kiosk. And I, no, I, I just noticed some of the magazines that were on sale, including a magazine just called sexy yeah it does exactly what it says on the cover uh and it's it's, this week's sexy magazine sexy and harry h corbett is in an adjoining phone booth uh on the phone to this girl who's been stood up by her date and she's called greeter and he you think he is gonna he's managing to sort of charm her she doesn't realize that it's him next to her in the phone booth no um, right. And you think, oh yes, he's you know he's on the verge of pulling here, and then she says, oh, um, you know, there's this bloke in the phone booth next to me. He looks a bit weird. Does she say he looks like a monkey or something like that? Looks right? like, yeah, she does say that he looks like a monkey, and you go, oh, yeah, and that that moment, and then she's going, uh, uh, Ambrose, are you there? And then it, it pans across to his 
phone booth. And of course, the phone is left dangling. Dangling. And mm. he's gone. You know, go, oh, no, it's just yeah. awful. You feel I felt really, you know, and from a character point of view, you feel really sorry for him. You know, you think, oh, you yeah. poor son. You've, you were really getting on well there and under the circumstances. And now, look, you're right back to square one again. So it's, it's a very, very poignant piece, I think. I ended this sequence by saying, I think he went off and threw himself under a tube train. <laughs> the light at the end of the tunnel is not the delayed 1420 service. <laughs> There's an unexpected Ambrose on the line. Oh, dear. Uh, so... Spread myself thickly tonight. All over the place. Yeah. <laughs> oh, devil. So, so the, next we have Pride, which is written by Galton Simpson, getting back yeah. to Harry H. Corbett, of course. Um, and it's it's based on a, um, a show called uh, Impasse, which w- they wrote for Comedy Playhouse in 1963. And um, Paul Merton uh, remade it in the 90s for, what was it? Was it Goldman Simpson's Playhouse or something? I can't remember it what the was, series yeah, was. Yeah, it was a reworking of some of those... Um uh tony hancock sketches wasn't it a plus a couple of these other bits and pieces there was whatever galton simpson had come up with they, they kind of re- recreated some of them for a new audience yes um this particular sketch um has been done quite a lot in in over the years in varying bits and pieces so i was i was already familiar with it but when i got to see it but yeah. uh, again mm-hmm. i was a big fan of this one yeah so t- two motorists uh both driving down a very narrow country lane and they meet in the middle and one of them has to back up, but they're both too bloody minded to think that it should be them. And so you have Ian Carmichael as the rich man and you have Alfie Bass as the working class. Um, he's, the, well, he's, the, he's the shop steward, isn't he? He's yeah, that kind he of, uh, yeah. yeah. There's, mm-hmm. there's, there's certainly no room in this sketch for Terry Scott, I think. I think these are, these are spot on, this bit of casting here. Funny enough, you mentioned that. I was going to bring this up at the end of the show, but I'll bring it up now while, while we're talking about it because uh-huh. you know, I, I made mention of Graham Stark's connection with Peter Sellers and, and the irony mm. of the irony of this film is that it has two of the goons. Um, okay, it doesn't have Benteen, but you know, if we talk about the main three, it has two of the goons. It doesn't have Sellers, this film. Right. And <clears throat> I was going to ask you at the end, you know, if, if somehow or other Sellers had agreed, and to be honest with you, in 71, Sellers wasn't doing a lot. I don't think he made a film in 71, actually, Sellers. Um, if Sellers had agreed to maybe come and do a couple of days on this film, which part would he have played? And I, and I was, I spent ages trying to decide which part would he have taken. And the only, well, I could only see him appear, appearing in this sequence in Pride. And as, I was thinking he would either play the Ian Carmichael, the sort of, you know, uh, Sellers doing his sort of his posh bit. Yeah. Or doing the Alfie Bass Role, and I was thinking, yeah. kind of like the, the sort of the the William Mate Cobbler's Cockney character that he used to do. But you <laughs> yeah, just, mate. but you've just said Shop Steward. He could have done a variation on Fred Kite. Could have done been. a Fred Kite thing. Yes, he could have done. Oh, that's very true. Actually, having looked at it, he could have played both of those. In fact, the way that Sellers might have gone, he could actually play both characters. <laughs> true, with split screen. You know, yeah, he'd have been both. He'd have been <laughs> Ian. Cut. He'd been the, the one guy, the guy in the Rolls Royce and the beat up car as well. Yes, yeah, um, that would have been great. I, I could have seen that happening. <laughs> um, um, Alfie Bassett, it, get, it comes to blows, doesn't it? Obviously, they get to the stage where they where they decide, right, I, I'm not backing up, and you're not backing up. Right, I'm just sitting here. Then so they sit there, and uh, they Alfie Bass goes for a pee, and uh, Ian Carmichael goes with him. 
and then does that thing where he looks down at him. He's obviously not looking at him. He's looking yeah. at what his, his CC he's carrying, clearly. Um, and then he <laughs> says, right, I'll put a stop to this. He takes his coat off, and it's the coats are off, and it's going to come to blows. And Alfie Bus does this thing where nobody throws a punch anywhere near anybody else. But there's that moment where he says, yeah, oh, you nearly caught one. Then he says, yeah. <laughs> But yeah. I think they were both just trying to, you know, and the two wives are having a lovely little picnic between the two of them because this is this is something that happens a lot. So uh, yes, but yeah. uh, yes, I think it's uh, it's a nice little sketch there. And then my favourite moment, of course, is when the policeman turns up, who's oh, Ivor yes. Dean, you know, who's absolutely brilliant in absolute in everything yeah. as Lord uh, Claude Eustace Teal in the Saint, and he turns up as a policeman in this. Fantastic. Yeah, he is the standout in this for sure. Yeah, we won, darling. How clever of you. Yes, I'm quite pleased about that. Stand up for what you believe. It's the only way. Oh, Constable. How far is Lord Canewood's house? Lord Canewood, uh, uh, about a mile, sir. Oh. Thank you very much. I wouldn't go that way if I were you, sir. Why not? Because he lives back there. By the way, you won't be able to turn round, so you'll have to back up. <laughs> You've got Keith Smith as the RAC man, um, who 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 was a, a part of the Milligan Rep Company on the Q series. Ah, right. Um, Robert Gillespie's the other guy, isn't he, on the AA chap? Yes, who uh, Robert Gillespie, who follows me on Twitter. Actually, oh uh, well, there we are then. So there you go. Shout out to you, Robert. Fair yeah, play. I have actually um, contacted Robert in the past to ask him about his very small part in Rent a Dick, and oh. I, <laughs> maybe I should rephrase that. <laughs> very small part in Rent a Dick. How dare you? <laughs> yeah, but you know what I mean. Um, I do. Eddie, he, he, he gave me a little bit of information about that, so that was all, all well and good. Oh, nice. Um, but yeah, so so. Uh, so yeah, so that's you know that's pride, and then and then we have, for me, the the, the best part of the film, which is Spike's sequence, which is which is sloth, sloth, yes. and it's written and it's written by and stars Spike Milligan, Spike uh, as a as a tramp essentially, um, with his hands in his pockets permanently of his of his coat because um, because, <laughs> because he's <laughs> holding his walnuts, holding his walnuts, yeah. <laughs> The, the the running gag or the running theme throughout this sequence is walnuts um and it's shot as a as a silent i was gonna say black and white but it's more sepia a black and white silent film with intertitles yes humorous right. intertitles and it has spike as i say as the tramp it has um ronnie barker who is sitting on a chair in a queue at a bus stop <laughs> Um, because he was at Al Alamein, and I think he lost his walnuts, didn't he, when he was there? <laughs> Everything's lost at El Alamein. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Melvin Hayes turns up as well. Melvin the Hayes. Yeah. You have Marty Feldman. Uh, ah, yes. Who's in the middle of a field, walks up to a tree in the right in the middle of the field, and refuses to walk <laughs> around it. He's no. going to he's going to wait for it to fall down. <laughs> <laughs> but he's he's where yeah, every uh, every other film that you see Marty Feldman in when he's not playing a certain character. He's always wearing that long coat, a long scarf, and that hat. That bowler hat. That's exactly what he's wearing. Yeah. This. Yeah. Oh, dear. You have Graham Stark um, uh, in a in a bath, which is constantly overflowing. and In a bath. Poor old David Lodge. There we are. I knew we'd get there. David the Lodge from Cockleshell Heroes. Um, he's in the room underneath, and he's getting 
obviously drip <laughs> dripped on drenched yeah <laughs> it's just it's just the matter of fact way of you going oh i bet somebody's left that bath overflowing and then he gets up the ah he's going to talk to him. he just goes to the loo and then comes back and puts the puts a little cup on top of his chest and carries on sleeping <laughs> yeah. and right and how much do you think Kaju robinson paid graham stark to appear in this film because he's playing a newlywed i think isn't he and and his oh, wife who's is... he marrying oh my goodness madeline smith madeline oy smith oy. yeah Oi, oi, yeah. what a lucky guy. <laughs> um, yeah, and and she, you know, she, oh no, I think I've, uh, I've I forgot to bring my nighty. <laughs> and he does that little look into camera. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh dear, there are some lovely moments, lovely, lovely moments in this. We were, um, we, were but, we were hooting with laughter watching this, and we hadn't really been hooting before this sequence in the film. Um, Spike, Spike and that tractor, it's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is I can't play any clips in, the, in this because it's silent. But Spike, Spike is a tramp who oh, yes, that's he, right. he, he he won't open a gate, or he can't. Well, he's holding his walnuts because he's he holding his walnuts. walnuts right? um, then he's trying to get an apple off a tree, and ah, oh, it's hilarious. And you have a you have a drowning man. Um, in the end, the the I'm not I'm not quite sure. I did make a note of who the actor was, sort of sitting on the riverbank watching him drown. But in the end, the drowning man just sort of stands up and <laughs> walks out of the river and says, oh, yeah. I shall drown elsewhere. <laughs> yeah. So if you if you haven't seen this film, um, it's worth it just to watch this sequence alone, I would say. Um, Spike Spike has just taken the film to a, another level. Spike and Madeline Smith, absolutely the two finest things in this. No <laughs> doubt about it. And, and then we have the final sequence, which... Is a bit of a damp squib, I think. Um, <laughs> well, we've we've been saying all along, you know, that there's a there's a lot of characters in this who play themselves, <laughs> and uh, you know, no disrespect, but Stephen Lewis playing Stephen Lewis in this, uh, and and he's playing Blakey, yeah, pretty much as he had played his entire career. You know, Ro Ronnie Fraser doing his thing, and uh, Arthur Howard, I think it's Arthur Howard, yes, is, is, yes. Is the other guy, yeah. Um, and uh, they're, they're quite happily sat there on a park bench enjoying themselves and uh, feeding the ducks in front of a sign that says, do not feed the ducks or do not feed the swans or don't feed the birds. And of course, he comes up, yeah, 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 come on, you pay Because <laughs> he does that all the time in everything he's ever casted. And then hilarity ensues on the page. <laughs> maybe maybe it doesn't translate terribly well, but I mean, the, but it's got, I think the, the ending's quite nice. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, but you're—I mean, you're—you're you're Blakey. It is Blakey in all but name. And, it's Blakey. And Bla yeah, no, Blakey, Blakey to me only had two. He had one. No, he had two catchphrases, I think, in on the buses. Isn't it marvelous? He always used to say, "Isn't it marvelous?" Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, oh, I you butter. Yeah. Go on, get that bus out. Go on. Uh, yeah. Oh, that was the other. <laughs> the other he used, what was the other thing he used to say? Oh, that's my birthday. That's it. Ah. That's yeah, it. and and I think he uses all of them, bar the on the buses references in this. <laughs> <laughs> the full repertoire well, on the buses. <laughs> this nineteen seventy one was peak on the buses. It was oh, in its, its huge, in its heyday, and it was yeah. the the first movie came out in seventy one, and it was like second only to Diamonds Are Forever, wasn't it? I tell you what, and the thing, and and people they they look and they go, oh my god, how appalling! We can't watch that now, and yet at the time. And again, the times, you look at the times, but you look at the ratings. Bear in mind, there was only three channels back then. Uh, and you and you go, 
good lord these things were absolutely enormous episodes of that show would get millions upon millions upon millions huge ratings and then of course the movie turned up but yeah, yeah big big stuff yeah and we didn't mention this is the sequence is wrath or wrath i don't know how you pronounce wrath. it wrath uh wrath um just on stephen lewis i'm very fond of he appeared a couple of times on Alexi Sales show in the nineties. <laughs> Do you remember Bob, the character Bobby Chariot that Alexi Sale used to play? Who was this? Yes, terrible warm-up man character. <laughs> yes, he was. He was yes. a bit, kind of looked a bit like a a, a fat Ken Dodd. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Stephen Lewis was his scriptwriter. <laughs> Or Stephen Lewis was playing his playing script writer, script. <laughs> who had just this permanent hangdog expression on his face. Yeah, going. I don't oh. think anybody could. They're just you. They're, there are certain individuals that you couldn't invent, and Stephen Lewis <laughs> is one of them. You know, but he did. The funny thing was that doing that his entire life, right up until his last role, playing that same character in Last of the Summer Wine. You know, just the whole thing. He just played the a different character, but the same Stephen Lewis character. You know? <laughs> and still getting laughs all the way through. Fuck yeah, and I, I gather he was a genuinely really nice guy in real life. Oh, so and, I believe, um, yeah. And as we're watching this, my my friends, uh, one of them, Tilt, said, um, <laughs> just he just dropped it in. He said, yeah. Uh, Stephen Lewis was once hugged by Keith from The Prodigy. So there we are. <laughs> oh, said, my God. And I said, what? That's my bar day. I said, I said, what? He said, and I forget what he said now, but it was some, <laughs> Stephen Lewis was, there was some festival somewhere going on in the 90s and Stephen Lewis turned up and Keith Flint was there from The Prodigy. Nobody um, else in the entire field had any idea who he was, but, <laughs> but the, your man from The Prodigy went, oh my God, it's Blakey! <laughs> Raced over to him. That's yeah, brilliant. The, the, the tragically late Keith Flint, by the way. Yeah, but yeah. no, that's right. Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, oh, uh, goodness. And it culminates quite fittingly. The film ends with a public lavatory exploding. <laughs> and then... And then um, the, the demonic figure of Blakey in hell with a pitchfork. In hell. That's mm. right. It's, in fact, we've, we've also gone full circle because we started talking about uh, Steven Spielberg. And, uh, of course, at the end of Jaws, when he showed the movie, the final cut or the initial final cut to his friends, uh, Mr. Coppola and um, all his other uh, director friends, Scorsese, and they all said, you need to blow the shark up. Well, maybe Graham Stark's got to that stage. <laughs> we need to blow these loos up. This is just not working, this scene. Let's blow it up. Yes! Let's have that explosion. Let's put the money on the screen and do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And it worked. That's a big bang as well. I tell you, for, for, for saying what sort of budget they got, and that thing, your man... <laughs> the guy who's tying his shoelaces. It's a very form formatted type explosion. There's a plunger and a guy wants to tie a shoelace. And of course, when it goes off and it really goes it off. Does. It does. Bloody hell. Hats off to the special effects guy and the bloke <laughs> for moving very quickly. I think, good Lord. Yeah. Not, no two takes on that one. No, no. And so there we go. So that, that is, that is the film. And it, it, it was entertaining in parts and there were, there were, there were, there were good bits and there were bits that were a bit ho-hum. But um, yeah, and, and obviously it means a lot to you because you've got such memories of it. You know, I, I, from that moment when I bought it and started watching it, it just it's it's just great fun that there, we all have those films where we go, 
I'm, I'm going to just put this on and go to my um, happy place in inverted commas. That sort of, that's the sort of thing. And that's what this is. It's just silliness. And, uh, and then you get a couple of, you know, you get a couple of belly laughs along the way and, and you know, what's coming. It's great. So yeah, yeah it's, it's great fun. No, no stunts. I don't think in this film. No, no. Well, I mean, there is, I tell you what, there is, um, and I don't know who's, I don't think there's, there's nobody credited on it, certainly, but there is a moment, if you remember, in the last one there in um, in Wrath, where um, Ronnie Fraser, he's, he's going to attack Stephen Lewis with a knife or a machete, I think, yeah. on top of the bridge, you know, the famous bridge in the uh, Pinewood Gardens. Yes, there? yes. Uh, yeah. That's where that's where that is. And uh, somebody takes a big swan dive off the top of that and lands in the pool. Now, that pool at the best of times is, um, or it must have a foot, possibly two foot of water in it. So I would imagine there was a mattress in the water there, or in the old days, they would put a net uh, but it's not deep enough for a net. So I'd imagine there was there was a mattress of some shape or form underneath the water level. Uh, so whoever did take a dive off the top there, and I would say that's probably about 15 feet, and they've uh, they flat-backed into the water there. And that's a, a proper do. That's Whoever did that would have earned their money. And I suspect, again, uh, from the, possibly the nature of the production, is that um, uh, an associate producer has been asked to run off and go to somebody, go to the stunt boys and go, uh, anybody not working? <laughs> have you, can I borrow you for 10 minutes? We've got well, a no. thing we need to I, I suspect uh, that <clears throat> Graham Stark, you know, with his eye ever on the bottom line, just just bunged Ronnie Fraser 50 quid and said, <laughs> do it yourself, do it son. Yourself. Yeah. Have a big swallow of this and go. Yeah. Because... Um, uh, well, that's, maybe that is the case, and if that's <laughs> if that is the case, then uh, Ronnie Fraser, God bless you, we salute you, my yeah, friend. We that do. was absolutely spectacularly done <laughs> uh, for half a bottle of scotch. Good lad. <laughs> oh, John, I've enjoyed this immensely. Thank you so much for. Uh, no, it's a pleasure. I'm, I'm a, again, I'm a huge fan of the show, and uh, I invite everybody who hasn't gone back through the huge back catalogue that is uh, Goonpod to do so and explore all the uh, terrific guests and some great stories and and it's just a fun time so even if you're not a big fan of the goons uh, it's great entertainment I, i'm always listening to them on car journeys or bits and train journeys or whatever it is so i'm uh, my hat's off and thank you to you for doing what you do it's great fun you have to 50 quid yourself. <laughs> that was bruce you were right there on the bruce button <laughs> <laughs> um but uh, yeah, so uh, I, everybody go and do that and 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 thank Tyler for all his work. Oh, you thank do you. That. Thank you. Oh, I'm blushing. Well. You, you can't see it, but I'm blushing sweetly. Um, <laughs> so, John, um, if you want to just let people know where they can find the stuff that you do. The main one is, is um, uh, YouTube. If you uh, go to uh, youtube.com and forward slash it with behind the stunts or just type behind the stunts into uh, any search engine, you're bound to come up with me in some shape or form. There's a Facebook, Twitter. Twitter is at Stunt Central if you'd like to follow me there um, or all sorts of action-based frivolity. Um, and similarly on Instagram, behind the stunts again, you'll find all of that. So uh, it's a weekly podcast and a weekly youtube show uh, um if you haven't found me already i'm on all of the uh, wherever you find your podcasts you can find behind the stunts podcast uh, on there too but uh, on a wednesday the podcast comes out and often whatever i'm 
discussing that week is an overview of the action and then on the friday on the youtube channel i go into it i do a bit more of a deep dive and do some analysis on the footage itself we slow down the footage and we show you how they create the action so that's what i do on a weekly basis so if you'd like to join me there i would be thrilled to see you thanks again to john thank you for listening i'll be back next week with another episode hope to see you soon take it easy bye